0: Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you, nice to be with you this morning for chapel and I'm going to be commenting on 2 Corinthians chapter four, verses one through six. Charles Spurgeon in his classic book, Lectures to My Students, has a chapter entitled The Minister's Fainting Spells in which he describes the pressures upon Christian workers, elders, shepherds, teachers. He says this, our work when earnestly undertaken lays us open to attacks in the direction of depression. Who can bear the weight of souls without sometimes sinking to the dust? Passionate longings after men's conversion If not fully satisfied, and when are they? Consume the soul with anxiety and disappointment. To see the hopeful turn aside, waxing bolder in sin. Are not these sights enough to crush us to the earth? The kingdom comes not as we would. The reverend name of God is not hallowed as we desire, and for this we must weep. How can we be otherwise than sorrowful, while men believe not our report, and the divine arm is not revealed? All mental work tend to weariness and depress, but much study is a weariness of the flesh, but ours is more than mental work, it's heart work. The labor of our inmost soul, such soul travail as that of a faithful minister will bring on occasional seasons of exhaustion when heart and flesh will fail. No one has experienced what Charles Spurgeon writes about in this text more than the apostle Paul. A wave of distrust has now swept through the Corinthian church. Some say that Paul is not sincere Others question whether he has apostolic authority. And then in the epistle, he sets forth an unusual accumulation of words expressing the sufferings that he has faced. Suffering of mind, heart, body, affliction, anguish, beaten, beatings, imprisonments, whippings, stoning, shipwrecked, conflicts, danger, hunger, persecution, punished, sorrow, suffered, sufferings, tears, tumults, weak, weakness, sleepless nights, hunger, exposure to the cold. To top it all off, they said he was unimpressive and a lousy speaker. He adds, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches." Did Paul succumb to these attacks and trials? Not at all. Rather he defended the integrity of his ministry with a point-by-point response to his detractors. And as a result, in the text before us, he gives the church, he gives us a dynamic, profile of how the ministry, he's speaking, of course, of apostolic ministry, public ministry, but all Christians are involved in ministry or service for the Lord. And he tells us how it ought to be done. Mr. Spurgeon was right in delineating discouragement as one of the ministry's great risks. Loss of heart can bring disaster. But two things will ground us. One, God's merciful call. And second, the surpassing glory of the gospel ministry. Our passage begins with the word, therefore. When I was a young believer, I was taught in a Bible study class to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? You've been taught that as well. In this verse, the therefore is retrospective. That is, it looks back to what Paul has said in chapter three about the many advantages Christians have over the ministry of Moses at the time of the giving of the law. He has shown that the ministry of the new covenant sealed in in Jesus' blood is superior to the ministry of the old covenant. Paul refers to this ministry, and by that he means the ministry of the Holy Spirit that provides righteousness to unrighteous people. We have this ministry, the plural is used there. He includes the apostles, but by extension, he includes all believers, as he does in chapter three, where he says, we all with unveiled face beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord. The expression we received mercy, that's something that everyone in this auditorium should remember. We receive mercy. The verb there is a theological passive, that is, we receive mercy from God. This alludes to Paul's conversion and call when he received God's mercy, God's gratuitous favor toward him. And he was appointed to gospel service, Christ service. Louis Burkhoff, little refresher for my theology students. Louis Burkhoff defines mercy as the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress irrespective of their deserts, Paul was profoundly aware that his salvation and call were not due to his own adequacy, initiative, resources from first to last, it was from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his high calling as an apostle, his experience of the mercy of God, Paul was undaunted by the trials that he faced. He writes, we do not lose heart. This verb means to behave badly, especially in a cowardly way. Here it means just to lose heart or to become discouraged. Paul had a deep abiding sense of what he owed to Christ, the inestimable glory of the Christian ministry more than compensated for all of those trials that he endured. A well-known Bible teacher of an earlier generation, Mr. Harold St. John, wrote in one of his books, and may I say that the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ never means a thing to us until it takes our breath away and becomes the biggest thing in life. For Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ was the biggest thing in life. A discouraged Methodist minister wrote to Alexander White, the famous evangelical minister of Free St. George's Church in Edinburgh, to ask for counsel. He was very discouraged. He asked Mr. White, whom he respected. Should I leave the ministry?" White wrote back to him, No, never think of giving up preaching. The angels around the throne of God envy you, your great work. That's the kind of reply that the Apostle Paul would have written. The kind of reply all of us need to ponder whenever we feel that whatever work we're doing for the Lord Jesus Christ is in vain. Verse two begins with an emphatic, but on the contrary, which introduces a sharp contrast, it shows the kinds of things that losing heart will bring upon a person, behaving badly. Paul has renounced such things and he now lays out statements of Christian principle for the faithful servant of Jesus. Commentators differ here on whether Paul is defending himself against these accusations or whether he's attacking the ways and methods of his accusers. Probably he's doing both. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame. He's describing religious hucksters who get ahead by sneaky actions and deceit. Paul lists three things that should characterize the Christian minister, servant, witness for Christ. First, not walking in craftiness, or as Murray Harris translates it, not living by tricks. He's speaking of a cunning readiness to adopt any device or trickery for the achievement of ends. They're selfish and shameful things. A number of years ago, I would occasionally watch a Pentecostal a televangelist by the name of Robert Tilton. It was truly an astonishing thing to watch this man at work. Very, very handsome man, but he raked in literally millions and millions of dollars bought oceanfront property in Miami, had a big yacht. If you would only send him money, he said, he will send you a prayer cloth. This was a practice of others such as Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Rod Parsley. One offer included the promise that the prayer cloth had been dipped in the Jordan River. Mr. Tilton would also send you a vial of anointed oil to rub on the various sick parts of your body. He promised to pray over every piece of mail that came in. Sometimes on TV you'd see this big desk covered with letters and he'd be have his hands on top of them, and bow in prayer. Well, an eventual documentary exposed all of this. The workers in the office said actually he, that was only posed, he never ever read those letters, Uh, we opened the letters, took out the money, took down the name, and then threw the letters away in the dumpster out back. One humorous story concerned a lady who created an entire wardrobe by stitching together prayer cloths that she collected over the years from these various ministries. She said, this is my Benny Hinn blouse. This is my Robert Tilton skirt. She also sewed a pair of shorts for her husband from rod parsley prayer cloths, which he was forced to wear. (laughs) Secondly, not adulterating the word, twisting God's word. The Greek word translated adulterate or twist literally means bait, bait, or fish. It came to mean to ensnare or beguile and then falsify or adulterate. Paul may have been accused of twisting the Old Testament when he preached a works-free gospel and told Gentiles they did not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Well, such twisting of the word goes on today. i give you a case in point Professor John Hick, a well-known philosopher of religion and theologian. As a young man, he was converted to evangelical Christianity and was ordained as a Presbyterian ministry. He went on to teach at a number of front-rank universities, Birmingham, Claremont, Cornell, Princeton, Cambridge. He abandoned his evangelicalism He had made an evangelical profession when he was young. But he began to study world religions and began to feel that, well, they are just as truthful as Christianity. He continued to talk about the Bible, about Jesus Christ, using all of the usual terminologies, the Lord, the Savior, and all of this kind of thing. But he wrote this. The doctrine of Christ's incarnation if taken literally, is a pernicious teaching because it implies that God can be adequately known and responded to only through Jesus Christ and that the whole religion of mankind, which is outside the Judaic Christian faith tradition, is therefore by implication excluded as lying outside the sphere of salvation. Therefore, the incarnation Of Jesus Christ cannot be true. You've heard of Christopher Hitchens, well-known atheist author of God is Not Great. He had no use for, for people like John Hick. He was in a debate in Portland, Oregon on one occasion with a Unitarian minister, the Reverend Marilyn Sewell. And so she started, the, uh, she started the question and answer session this way. She said to Christopher Hitchens, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian and I don't take the stories of the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and my liberal religion?" Hitchens responded, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you are really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. That kind of took her breath away. She wanted no more part of that. She said, well, let's move on to another question. Imagine that, someone spouting her unbelief and rebuked by an atheist. The comments of John Hick and this Unitarian minister reflect what is taught today in liberal theological seminaries. James Denny, who was a professor of theology at the University of Glasgow and a believer, said this, if people in theological classrooms cannot follow Paul, people in mission halls and on the streets and in the simplest kinds of meetings can because the qualification for understanding Paul is not theological scholarship, but despair. Personal despair and the sense of one's unworthiness and need of salvation. That brings me to Paul's third point, namely the positive requirement of the minister of Christ. His work is the manifestation of the truth. He must set forth the truth clearly. The truth, as he will say in verse five, is the truth of the gospel which focuses on Jesus Christ as Lord. This truth makes its appeal, Paul says, to the conscience. I hope the last row of your consciences are uh, focusing in a little bit, brothers. It makes its appeal to the conscience, the moral center of the person. James Denny says the conscience is not our rational faculty, our reason, the preacher's business is not to prove, but to proclaim, to tell the gospel. Denny also says that this is the simplest and most complete direction for preaching the gospel. The preacher is to make the truth manifest. Make it clear. Even though Paul proclaimed the gospel openly and plainly, not every human conscience perceived and embraced it, and nobody and not everybody turns to the Lord. In chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, Paul said that a veil lay over the hearts of Jews when the law of Moses was read. Here, Paul says that there is a veil upon the minds of unbelievers when the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. John Calvin said the blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clearness of the gospel for the sun is no less resplendent because the blind do not perceive it. Paul says this, such persons are perishing. They're on their way to destruction. They stand under the wrath of God. Paul now explains why some have failed to believe. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. When Paul speaks of the God of this world, he's not speaking of God the Father. He's speaking of Satan. Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world. And Paul elsewhere calls him the prince of the power of the air. Here, Paul calls him the God of this age. As a Christian rabbi, Paul divided history into two ages, this present age, this age, and the age to come. This age is going to continue until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The age to come will see the establishment of the kingdom of God upon this earth. So one of the reasons people don't understand the word of God is that Satan is blinding them. I think one of the great lacks of our time is that people do not believe in the ontological reality of the devil. The devil exists. Paul compliments his statement about Satan's action by referring to human responsibility. The unbeliever is not an innocent victim. He's an unbeliever. Paul's statement is not that Satan blinded people so that they would become unbelievers. Rather, he blinded those who were already unbelievers. The result of their unbelief is they do not see the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This expression, the image of God, is bound up by Paul, for Paul, in the incarnation. God is invisible. Jesus comes to this earth as the image of God. This is the same word that's used for a statue might put up a statue of General Grant. That statue represents General Grant. Jesus Christ is God's image upon this earth. You want to know what God looks like when, after all, no one can gaze on him and live? Study Jesus. The apostles could literally look at him in person. We can gaze on his glory as we read of his earthly ministry when we Read of his, minis- his uh, mediatorial ministries, forgiveness of sins, justification, his priestly work. In the future, he will dwell with us upon the earth. It's Revelation one eight, and he, God with them, that is Emmanuel, shall be their God. And then later he says, we shall see his face. Verses five and six. In verse five, Paul clarifies precisely the gospel subject and it's not Paul. It's not any human preacher, teacher, witness. We preach Christ Jesus our Lord. Professor Charles Cranfield at the University of Durham offered this sound advice. He says, the apostle Paul here speaks of his own ministry, but in so doing, he indicates the mark of every true ministry of the word. For we preach ourselves. Now listen to this, of the various temptations which beset the Christian minister, one of the chief and deadliest is the temptation to preach himself. Such a person makes no really serious attempt at all to expound the scripture, offering to his congregation his own ideas, opinions, prejudices. He may use the pulpit for self-exploitation, self-exhibition of his powers of eloquence and so forth. The varieties of self-exploitation can be seen in the various kinds of preachers we meet today, the preacher as cheerleader, the power of positive thinking, the preacher as conjurer. He's the preacher who, after he speaks, you say, where did he get that? Uh, Wonderful things in the Bible I see, things that are put there by you and by me. There are preachers that have that tendency. They want to preach something that no one else has ever seen before. And then there's the storyteller. Stories are good. But today there are preachers and they their sermon is a story. The entertainer, the entertainer, the preacher who views his time on stage as a performance. The comedian, the psychologist, and so on. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. Now earlier in the epistle, Paul said that he was committed to preach Christ crucified, are these in contradiction? No, Paul is here encapsulating everything when he says we preach Christ Jesus as Lord. He's including the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation of Christ in heaven, and everything he accomplished by his blood. The acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord leads to lowly service, he says ourselves as your bond servants. Now, you know that translation bond servants is not really correct. It's the word doulos. We should read ourselves as your slaves for Jesus sake. Professor Harris speaks of the curious reluctance to translate doulos by slave. He notes that there are at least four words in the New Testament for servant. Paul doesn't use them. He uses the word for slave, for slave. Later he will say, I I will most gladly spend and be expended for your sake. In verse six, Paul gives the reason that he preached Christ and was devoted to the Corinthians. We might render the word for at the beginning of the verse because it is because God has dispelled his darkness and ours also by illuminating his heart and has given him a knowledge of Christ. Many commentators believe, I am with good reason, that Paul is alluding here to the conver- his conversion experience on the Damascus Road. He uses the plural, our hearts, because his experience is a paradigm, it's a picture of all Christian conversion. Remember that beautiful verse in the book of Acts talks about Lydia, and it says, "'And the Lord opened her heart' to respond to the things spoken by Paul." At the beginning of the verse, there's an allusion to the creation in Genesis chapter 1. For God who said, light shall shine, That's a future tense there. It's what is grammatically called a categorical imperative. Light shall shine, that is a command. Our spiritual illumination begins, think about this for a minute. Our spiritual illumination begins with the God of the universe. The God who created this universe Paul, says Denny, finds the only adequate parallel to his own conversion in that grand creative act in which God brought light by a word out of darkness of chaos. And then Paul moves from creation to our salvation. Conversion is the flooding of a darkened human heart by the God that's been darkened, by the way, by the God of this age. Paul was blind, persecuting the church, hounding believers, having them killed, treating them as his scum. Then he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. A bright light shone around him, and the Lord spoke to him. Now, Paul at that time didn't see the face of Jesus, but it's interesting, in three little places in the book of Acts, it does say that Jesus came and spoke to Paul. He certainly did see the face of Jesus Christ. Rufus Jones was a noted Quaker philosopher. He used to tell a story about a little girl, possibly his niece. When going to bed one evening, she suddenly became afraid of the dark. Her mother assured her that she did not need to be afraid because God is going to be with you. So you have no need for fear. The little girl responded somewhat irreverently, but I don't want God, I want someone with a face. Well, when the Lord Jesus came, people saw the face of God. He was the image of the invisible God. And in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation, the glory of God was displayed. Paul has spoken earlier of glory, the radiant splendor on Moses' face. It was a reflection of the glory of God, but it was fading away. In Jesus' day, the glory of God was in his face, in his person, and we have have an unfading glory. God himself has come to dwell in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Let me remind you of the quote of Cranfield, of the various temptations which beset the Christian minister, one of the chief and deadliest is the temptation to preach himself. The second is from C.K. Barrett. He wrote, it would be hard to describe the Christian ministry more comprehensively in so few words as verse 5, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for his sake. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage, which speaks to us of the apostle and his ministry, but by application, it should speak to each one of us. Whatever our career path may be, for we are all called to be witnesses to Jesus Christ in our time and place. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we part now. We thank you for the opportunity to sit together, to open your word. I pray for our student body, Lord. I pray that you would give them seriousness of heart about the scriptures and not be led away by the frivolity of this age. We ask in Christ's name, amen.